Uh, you could please, if you would, turn in your Bibles or locate them on your device. Acts chapter 8 is where we uh, are today. It's good to be back uh, in, in the pulpit this morning, uh, having been uh, away last week and Kevin filling in for us. And uh, Kev, I, I think you're around. I saw you. I appreciate your message. Uh, the first uh, four I am statements of the Lord. And we're looking forward to the end of June when I'm on vacation, Kevin uh, finishing up that study. So just really good to consider who it is that we worship. You know, so many of the songs that we sang today were about this idea of just lifting up Christ and not other things. Uh, above all else, glorify, magnify your name, all those terms. So just so good for us to do that. So Kev, thank you very much for sort of uh, priming that pump even last week, perhaps unknowingly. This morning, we're going to return back to Acts chapter 8. We've been in this chapter for a little while now, and we're still going to be in it for quite a bit, another three weeks probably. But today, we're going to pick up our study uh, right around verse 4. Um, so you can locate that there. I'll remind you of this, that the timing of our material is this. We are about four or five years after Jesus died was raised back to life and then ascended up into the heavens. So we're about four or five years after that. The church is being established. There has been the great outpouring of God's uh, work with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the mass conversion of individuals to the faith. And at one point we saw that they numbered 3,000. Another point there were 5,000 men that had come to the faith. And so tens of thousands of people have come to the faith by this point. And in this three or four or five years, they've been being uh, discipled in the faith, growing in the faith, being taught the scriptures by the apostles. We've been looking at these things, seeing these things, but I think sometimes we can sort of lose sight of it because, you know, it's just a chapter or two ago. In reality, it was a year or two, three years ago that had gone by. And so the church is growing, has grown rapidly, but at, and with that, there was an increasing level of persecution as well. And we saw an example of sort of the height, the zenith of that persecution, at least to date, is when Stephen himself was killed. This man that we looked at last or two weeks ago, uh, the stoning of Stephen. Killed by the religious leaders who were determined they were going to stop, in their mind, this heretical movement. They were going to stop it and, if need be, even put people to death in the process. And so we saw that there. We saw that as a result of that, the church was scattered. People began to run for their lives, I guess you might say literally, in all different directions to get away from that statement there that you see uh, in, I guess it's verse 3 or so, where this fellow by the name of Paul or Saul is ravaging the church. He's, it's a violent term. It's a term used to describe when an animal find, like kills its prey and begins to tear it apart. It's a very violent term that is used, and this rabbi had taken it upon himself, he was going to put an end to Christianity. Hunt people down, drag them out of their homes, it speaks of. Men, women, didn't matter. He was going to put an end to this thing. So naturally, you can expect people are going to run for their lives, and people did. And as they ran for their lives, they left the city of Jerusalem, where the church was primarily centered. People came there to Jerusalem to be taught by the apostles, and they began to go abroad. They began to go to other locations. They were scattered abroad. And I'll remind you just one last point from the last time we were together. That word scattered, two different words in the Greek language for scattered, at least two different words. One of those we find in our scripture is used to just sort of randomly throw something into the wind and it'll go where it's gonna go. 
The other term that is used is the term that is often used to describe how a sower will sow his seed or plant the seed. It's by design. It's with a purpose. This is where I'm going to put it. This is where the thing is going to grow. That's the word that is used here to describe the church being scattered abroad. God was, by design, sending his people to the places he wanted them to go so that the seed might be planted, that the seed might bear fruit. And the first example of that that we have is a fellow by the name of Philip. And we pick up with him in verse 5. I'll read to you. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in the city, in the city, I should say. That's silly, I guess. Philip, excuse me, one second. Now the name Philip might be familiar to you. He was one of those deacons that was named in the uh, previous chapter or so that we looked at. One of those men that the scripture says was a man of good repute. He was full of wisdom and he was full of the Holy Spirit. And you recall that there was a little problem that developed in the early church. These widows over here felt they were being uh, ignored compared to those widows over there. And it became this issue. They brought it to the apostles. The apostles said, look, you have an issue, yes. But it's not really our responsibility to handle that issue, to get distracted with that particular issue. And so they said, name among you seven people that can devote themselves to work on this particular problem. One of those men was that guy, Stephen, that we talked about in one of our previous studies. The second, or a, a second, was a man by the name of Philip. Now, today we're going to be introduced to what we might call the post-deacon days of Philip. Philip had been faithful, just like Stephen was, in the little things that God had entrusted him with. And because he had, he was now being entrusted with greater things, to use sort of a reference from the scripture. There's two different verses that speak to this particular principle of the kingdom of God. The first is found in the Gospel of Luke. It speaks to the idea of faithfulness and being entrusted with various responsibilities. I'll read it to you, Luke chapter 16. One who is faithful in very little will also be faithful in much. And one who is dishonorable in very little or dishonest in very little will be dishonest with much. It speaks to this idea, if you can be faithful with very little, then you can be entrusted with greater things. Philip is an example of that. The second verse that speaks to this principle of the kingdom of God is found in the book of Matthew, and it speaks to the idea of having increasingly larger responsibilities based on previous faithfulness. This comes from Matthew chapter 25. It says, Now his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and so I will set you over much. Enter in to the joy of your master. Philip, Stephen, are examples of that. Faithful in waiting on tables, making sure that everyone had enough food to eat, the very practical things of a church or a society that need to be dealt with, those two men and the others, no doubt, were faithful in that regard. 
and now God has a larger, a greater task, so to speak, for them. Now, before considering the larger responsibility that the Lord has for Philip, I think it's very important for us to point out that just because we see Stephen and Philip being entrusted with a greater deed to do, that, that is not meant to imply that all that serve as a deacon do so merely as a stepping stone to something greater. It's not meant to imply that at all. It's not meant to just put in your time, man, and you'll get that place, that high position that you're looking for. That's not what it is meant to imply at all. What do you know of Procurus or Nicanor or Timon or Parmenas or Nicholas? Likely not much. I suspect none of us here know very much about those five faithful deacons. And it's possible they went on to accomplish great things and Luke just didn't see fit to write about it. But the more likely scenario is that those men just continued to faithfully serve in relative anonymity. And they served and they blessed others without any accompanying fanfare. And so again, I bring it up because sometimes we look at the servant roles as stepping stones to something more prominent, something greater. We need to be on our guard against that because we will become embittered in the process. Nobody said thank you today. Nobody noticed me today. Nobody patted me on the back today. I'm not advancing fast enough. That's not what the kingdom of God is about at all. It's not about serving yourself. It's not about growing your opportunities for yourself. It's about honoring the Lord and glorifying the Lord. And we do that by serving him faithfully. And so these seven men, including Stephen, Philip, they didn't serve for what they could get out of the ministry. They served for what they could give to the ministry. And they were faithful with what God had put before them. And now for Stephen, the greater thing for Stephen was that he would publicly preach the gospel with the result being he would be killed for doing so. The greater thing for, for Philip is what we're going to look at today, what we have already begun to look at today. So again, picking up in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to the city or the region of Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. The persecution is what sent them forth. The persecution is what scattered them throughout that new region. And now we learn that one of those early disciples went to Samaria. That's Philip. He was just one of many of the thousands in the early church that were scattered abroad, that were scattered abroad and preaching as they went. One of those was Philip. And so the religious authorities, this guy, Rabbi Saul, thought they could stop Christianity by increasing the persecution against the faith. And reality, the result was they further spread the Christian faith because the people, as they went, they preached. Persecution will never stop the true church because when persecution comes, those that are truly in the Lord, their vision of Christ isn't blurred by the persecution. It becomes even more clear because of the persecution. We cannot help, Peter said, but to speak about what we have seen and what we've heard. You need to arrest us, arrest us. But we must obey God rather than men, they said. And so here is Philip. He's scattered abroad. He's proclaiming 
to them Christ. Philip, we might call the first overseas missionary in the church. And I, I have in my notes here, overseas, in sort of parentheses, or these things, quotations, because it wasn't overseas. It was just literally in another portion of the land of Israel. So it was overland. He was the first overland missionary recorded for us in the scriptures. He had left Jerusalem, and he had gone to Samaria. But it was like he went to a completely foreign country on the other side of the world, even though it was maybe a one-day journey or less. Because Samaria was a whole other world from Jerusalem. The region of Samaria, it was within the confines of the land of Israel, but it was a very separate and distinct area of land from the rest of the land occupied by the Jewish people. If you think of the, if we had a slide projector out here, we'd put a slide projector, what am I, 90? Uh, if, if we had, you know, that kind of thing, we would, I would put it up there. If you think of Israel like a rectangle, where the sides are longer than the top and the bottom, and then you divided that rectangle in half. So you have two squares basically sitting on top of one another. The region of Samaria would be smack dab in the middle of that upper square. And so it's there in the land of Israel. To the north of Samaria is the land of Galilee or the region of Galilee. To the south of Samaria is the region of Judea. That's where Jerusalem is located. And then to the south of that, in that bottom square, is the desert region of Israel. That's called the Negev in the Bible. Today we call it the Negev with a B. And so there's these four regions essentially there. And sort of smack dab in the middle between Galilee and Judea is this area of Samaria. Originally, just the normal part of the rest of the nation of Israel. However, in the 700s BC, when the Assyrians came into the land, they invaded the land, they conquered the area. And what they, the Assyrians were prone to do, they tried to disorient their captives. They did it all over the world, every place that they, they conquered, essentially the known world at that time. They would go in, they would take the, the people captive from that land, bring them to somewhere else and deposit some here, deposit some there, and some over there, and disorient them, essentially. And so now you're kind of looking around, you don't know who you know anymore, you don't, and nothing is familiar, everything is just disoriented in the process. They would leave behind the sick, the feeble, the lame, the older. They'd leave those behind because they're too hard to, so to speak, transport. And then they would take other folks, they would take the rest out. Now at the same time, they're gonna bring other folks from somewhere else and bring them in. They did the same thing there in the region of Samaria that they had done in other parts of the world. Now those new transplants that came into the land intermarried with those that were left in the land and a new, quote, race of people was formed. And so you have these pagan transports from other parts of the world that are transported in, they intermarry, they have children, and those are where we get the Samaritans that we are speaking of today. You can read the account. It's in your Bibles. Second Kings chapter 17 speaks of when the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel. Now that race, and again, I put it in quotation marks, these things, uh, yeah, quotation marks. That race of people that was formed by that intermarriage derisively was known by the Jewish people in Jesus's day as half-breeds. Uh, certainly not an appropriate term to use, 
but it describes the word that they use, or it was the word that they used to describe them. The Samaritans were half-breeds. The Jews of Jerusalem and some of the other places of Israel, they were the pure Jews. And so there was an animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The half-breed status went even further because when those foreigners came into the land, they brought with them their foreign religions. And so in the same way that their offspring was half Jewish, half some other country, they were also physically, um, ethnically, they were also religiously half Jewish, half some other religion as well. They began to blend these particular things. And so the pure Jewish people didn't see the Samaritans as sort of long-lost cousins or anything like that. They saw them as a people essentially worthy of judgment. You remember it was in Samaria that James and John said, Lord, should we call down fire and kill these people? They're certainly not worth anything. Let's just kill them because we disagree with them doctrinally on this particular issue. If you're watching that movie, those TV shows Chosen, one of my favorite lines is when Jesus says, kill them. Like, what's the matter with you? Or whatever, like, where'd that come from? Um, so anyway, do what you want with that. John chapter 4 is the wonderful passage of Jesus interacting with a woman at a well. That's there in Samaria. I love the, the passage. Such a sweet story. And there, you may recall, she made the statement, I think trying to sort of get the pressure off of her and put it on Jesus. You know, I don't want you staring into my soul. Let's talk about other things. But she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, what she's speaking of is the fact that the Samaritans, you don't want us in Jerusalem? Fine, we won't come to Jerusalem. We'll just set up our own temple. And they did. Right on Mount Gerizim, they set up a temple to Jehovah, they thought, where Jehovah would be worshipped. Now, the scriptures are very clear how Jehovah was to be worshipped. First at the tabernacle, later at the temple, which was there in Jerusalem. But that's okay for the Samaritans because they are half-breed religion, remember? And so those things in the Bible that they don't care for, they just cut out. They just ignored. So the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of Moses, which talk about worshiping Jehovah, but not specifically where to worship Jehovah. And so they just discounted the other 32 books of the Old Testament. They did what a lot of people do. Those parts of the Bible they don't like, they just cut out. Yeah, I don't pay attention to that part. I'm not a real fan of Paul. I like Jesus, not Paul. You know, this kind of stuff. And so, have I made it clear? There's a great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. I'm trying to be as emphatic as I can on that. I'll give you one final example, though. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> you know, you made your point. Uh, one final example is this. That Samaritan woman who said, you know, we worship here, you worship there, what's the right place to worship, and all of that. She began her conversation with Jesus by saying this, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, or a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses, because we didn't know this necessarily, and so John had to tell us, he said, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's why it's so peculiar that Jesus will say, gentlemen, we must needs pass through Samaria. What are you talking about? 
Everybody goes around, so good Jews go around Samaria. But Jesus said, no, we, we have to go through Samaria. I have a meeting there. Because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. There was a longstanding hostility between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. Now, I draw it to your attention because while Jews may have no dealings with Samaritans, Christians needed to have dealings with Samaritans. And so God scatters Philip, purposefully plants Philip there in the city or the region of Samaria, because while Jews have no dealings, Christians needed to. Philip goes down to Samaria, verse 5, and he proclaims to them Christ. Because Jesus had worked, Philip's a Jew, by the way, but because Jesus had worked in Philip's heart, there was no room for any kind of prejudice in Philip's heart and mind. And so if Philip ever did harbor racist feelings toward the Samaritans, he's not harboring them anymore. Philip went down to preach the best news possible to a people that his culture told him he was to despise and he was to ignore. In our day, there's a lot of talk about race and racial issues and racism and it's ingrained in people and all of these things. A lot of people over the last year have approached me and said, we need to talk more about it here at Calvary. We need to drive it home and all of that. Let me just tell you how we operate. Here at Calvary, we don't preach an anti-racism message when we gather together. We preach a pro-Jesus, pro-sanctification message here at Calvary Chapel because we believe that as Jesus transforms us from the inside out, the racist and the cultural and the sexist and all of those things that have developed into our pre-sanctified hearts are going to be dealt with. It's as we draw nearer to Christ that those areas of sin cannot remain. Now, do we have blind spots? Every one of us do because we're sinners. And we're convinced that our way is the right way. That's why we're doing it our particular way. And yes, we do have blind spots that need to be dealt with and addressed. And sometimes we need other people to speak into those area of, of our areas of our lives. But to divert our primary mission into those other areas or any other area that has become the cause of the day, it sidetracks us from what God has called us and commissioned us to do. Preach the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what we do. Philip's an example of that. There weren't strategy sessions about how to reach this other race of people. There weren't seminars about these things. They learned Christ, and they submitted themselves to Christ in every area of their lives. They were sanctified by Jesus Christ. And Philip then was changed. And he went and he proclaimed the message of the gospel to this people, again, that his culture told him, we don't like those people, and neither should you. The second thing here we see is this. Philip does the same thing in Samaria that the church was doing in Jerusalem. And again, what is it? They proclaim Jesus. So Philip doesn't change his message to make it palatable to a different group of people, a different culture of people. There are some that will suggest that if we're ever going to reach 
this particular people or this particular age group or this particular demographic group or whatever it might be, that we have to change our message to appeal to that group of people. This is what I wrote to that statement in my notes. To that I say poppycock. You know that? I was trying to think of a word. That's what I say to that particular idea. The same message that, that reached the Jews in Jerusalem was the message that would go on to reach the Samaritans in Samaria. We never need to invent different messages for reaching different people. Philip went down to Samaria, and he had one message and one person to proclaim to them. The message was of redemption, and the person was Jesus Christ who accomplished that redemption. Philip was, as the Apostle Paul would some years later say, not ashamed of the gospel. Because he knew, as it says in Romans chapter 1, it was the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. The Jew, the Gentile, and in the instance we're looking at here, the Samaritan as well. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that though we are yet sinners, that through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And as a result, rather than coming into the presence of God upon our death, bearing the unrighteousness of our sin, instead, again to quote the Apostle Paul, we can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, despite our sin. That's the message that Philip arrived in Samaria preaching. He was, as the Apostle Paul, love that fella, he was, as Paul would later say, resolved to know no other message among them save that one. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. There's power in the preached gospel of Jesus Christ. And Philip's audience was drawn to that powerful message. Look at verse 6. This is why we get through two verses at a time. We're on verse 6 today. It says, Now the crowds with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was much joy in the city. The crowds paid attention. One accord, they paid attention. They were all like-minded in that instance. That word or those words, paid attention, it means to devote one's thought to something. So these folks, they're not just sort of lazily listening to uh, Philip. There's an example later in the book of Acts where the people kind of come to the city square to hear what people have to say. And you can imagine people would kind of tune in and they're like, yeah, this is boring and the, hit the remote, so to speak, and go on to something else. That's not what's going on here with Philip. It says the people paid attention. They devoted themselves to something. They dropped everything that they were doing, and they were drawn into Philip's preaching. For in that moment, nothing was more important to them in their lives than to hear what this man had to say and to wrestle internally with what this man had to say. And then as God did, as God had and would do elsewhere, in the book of Acts, he confirmed his teaching of the word through Philip with various signs that in this instance serve 
the purpose of authenticating Philip and his message. Look at verse 6. It points out that Philip did signs, it says. And then verse 7 gives you a couple of examples of those miracles. It says, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, they came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And as it's easy to imagine, no wonder there was great joy in verse 8 in that city. The people came to believe. Verse 12 tells us that, actually. And God flooded their hearts with a joy that they hadn't even known was missing before this particular day. That so-called, as people say, hole in their heart as a result of the absence of the presence of God in their lives was filled by their belief in the message that Philip was presenting. It was filled. And the result was that there was a joy that they had never known before. That is the natural consequence, or maybe it would be more appropriate to say the supernatural consequence of being in a right relationship with God through his son. Philip preached that, and he presented that to this people. This people that he should have been culturally separate from, that was the message that he brought to them. You can bring that message to little kids, to whiny teenagers. I've heard about them. I don't have any. You can bring it to old people, Jim. Rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, American people, people somewhere else in the world. It is the hope of our entire world. And it's the truth. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can deal with the problem of our sin. And we boldly proclaim that, amen? Just like Philip did. I encourage you, again, to go back to that study previously. You have been scattered abroad by design to a particular location. You work at a particular place. You live in a particular community. You were birthed into a particular family or adopted into a particular family. You have a particular extended family. You have a network of people that God has purposefully placed you into. Proclaim Christ. Let them know the hope of salvation that is found in him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are, I think we're, I am emboldened by that reality. Lord, that I don't have to get all sort of uh, strategic and intellectual about how we're going to reach this people or that people or this culture or that culture. but that we can rest on the reality that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms a person. As that word enters in and it mixes with faith and the Holy Spirit births life, that a person can be born anew. And Lord, every one of us here, we know hundreds of people that don't yet know Christ, that have not yet had their sin dealt with that are missing a joy that they don't even realize that they're missing. 
so father i ask that you would uh sort of quicken each one of us that the days are short as well as being evil and that the hope must go forth and that you've planted each one of us that it might go forth through father we're asking that you would use us in the hearts of others for your glory we pray this prayer Amen.